Hebrews chapter 10, we'll read verses 26 to 31. 26 to 31. Our focus today will be on verse 27, which teaches us about the certain, terrifying, furious judgment to come. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach your word, we pray that we will understand, not only understand it, but truly believe what it says. May that be the case with each of us. We ask that we believe it and that we are not like those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. But may we be like those who properly understand what it means to be prepared for the day of judgment. May we be found in Christ. May we be found righteous because of Christ's righteousness, not, not our own, and not because we have given lip service to Christ. But may we be true followers from our heart and everything about us. May we be true followers of Christ and therefore be preserved from this wrath to come. Help us, Father, to think about these truths this day. In Christ's name, amen. As is the case with Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews, he has alternated between encouragement and admonition, from comforting us, but also warning us of things to come. He has also spent a lot of time on the theological. We know that this is the case from chapter 1. He will spend a lot of time on the theological until the end of chapter 12. He doesn't get into practical exhortation and instruction until chapter 13, the very last chapter of the letter. He wants us by this to understand what is essential and what is important for the Christian life. We must have our view of God correct and our relationship to God correct. We must have this, our view of who God is and our relationship to Him correct. And then comes the way we live. If we don't have God correct, if we don't understand who He is and why He created the world, why He created us, and whether we are prepared to meet him one day, if we don't have that correct, then there's no point in living. There's no purpose in life. And the kind of life we live now should be lived in him if we truly know him. That's why he has spent so much time on the theological, to make sure our minds have the mind of God in everything related to the things of God. Then, in our passage in chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, this is one of the most, uh, most uh, biting, most harsh, most, uh, most uh, severe of all warning passages in this letter, and even throughout the whole Bible. This one passage right here. When, when people read this passage, 
it causes them to tremble. It causes them to shake and quake and wonder, am I the person he's describing here as an unbeliever sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, or am I a true believer? It causes people to think that. And that's what it's supposed to do. This passage is supposed to make us realize whether we are in the faith or outside the faith. This passage is meant to have everyone who hears these words to ask themselves the question, am I truly in Christ or am I faking it? When I hear this message about the gospel of Christ, do I truly, honestly, genuinely, sincerely believe this message of Christ or do I not? And if we think about it, it is intended to make sure that we are truly in Christ. We are true believers. So may that be what happens to each of us, that we are confirmed in our faith, and if we do not have true faith, that we have true faith from hearing this passage. Specifically, in verse 27, it's about judgment. He's talking about the day of judgment. There is a day in which God will prepare the world to meet him face to face. Every individual, everyone created by God, will be presented before God one day. And it will happen just like that. It's not going to be a long and drawn out process. The Bible does not say it's going to last a thousand years, a million years, or ten million years. It doesn't say anything like that. It simply says that we will be presented before the Lord and what we will be found in Christ as a part of his sheep, those on his right hand, or we will be a part of the goats, those who are the wicked, who are not a part of his people, these people will be thrown into eternal punishment, but the righteous on his right side into eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. There are only two eternal destinies. So, verse 26 told us last time that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we go on sinning willfully, that is, persistent, continual sin, willful sin against the truth of God, if this continues, it persists, it doesn't end, we have no qualms about it, we don't want to repent of it, we don't want to live a circumspect life, we don't want to have any boundaries and parameters in our life, we're not making progress in our life, if that's not happening, and we have no guilt and no shame, and we just want to go on sinning willfully after receiving the, the knowledge of the truth, there lo no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He means that the sacrifice of Christ, if we don't really believe in the sacrifice of Christ, there's nothing else that's going to help you. There's nothing else that's going to deliver you from your sins. There's nothing else that's going to prepare you to meet God on that day of judgment. Nothing else awaits for you. You cannot trust in yourself. You cannot trust in somebody else. You cannot trust in an animal, an animal sacrifice. You cannot trust in your good, your good wisdom. You cannot trust in your own ingenuity, your own brilliance and skill in life, whether you died for your nation in, on the battlefield or whether you helped a little child get out of, of the... Of, drowning from a swimming pool, or whatever good thing you might have done in this world, that's not going to help you on the day of judgment. He's saying, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no, no sacrifice, nothing that we can present to God except Christ. 
only Christ. So our refuge, our rock, our fortress, our only solace, our only peace is Christ. Only Him. Then, if we reject that, what awaits us? He says in verse 27, if we reject Christ, there is only, he says, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. He first calls it certain. It's absolute. That means there's no doubt about it. There is a day of judgment. This is what the Apostle Paul said, and he gave proof of this in Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, when he's preaching to the Greeks, when he's preaching to the philosophers, to those who are intelligent and brilliant, often in their own mind, he was preaching to them, and he told them about the day of judgment. He says in Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He's calling all men everywhere, commanding men everywhere to repent, turn away from their sin. Why should they turn away from their sin now? God is now declaring, commanding to men everywhere to repent. Why now? Because a day of judgment awaits, a certain fixed day of judgment, verse 31, because he has fixed a day. Remember, we just learned about God's providence, God's control over all events in this world and even over all human actions. And here, this verse is saying that God has fixed a day. He has planned a day. He has a purpose for that day to come a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's going to judge the world. That's everyone. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen on that day of judgment. And it's not going to be as though God is capricious. God's not arbitrary. He's not unfair because he's going to do it in righteousness. In righteousness means he is a perfect, omniscient judge. He is a holy and righteous judge. When he does that on that day, he will do it in righteousness. And how do we know? What is the certainty with which we should believe this? He says here, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The certainty of the day of judgment here is asserted by the Apostle Paul by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's saying that that was proof that God has appointed him to be the great judge on the day of judgment. Because Jesus rose from the dead bodily, really, physically. It wasn't a fairy tale. It's not mythology. It's not just a legend. It's not somebody that cooked up a story that wanted to have a, a religious fanaticism or something like that. The day of resurrection, when Jesus rose from the dead, three days after he was crucified, when he rose from the dead, it was for the purpose, not only to demonstrate that he has eternal life awaiting, but to pr prove to all of us that the day of judgment is coming and he will be that judge to judge everyone. Jesus Christ, 
That is the proof, he says. He has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So if we want to know for certain, is there a day of judgment? It's related to the person and work of Christ, and specifically the fact that he rose from the dead. Why did he rise from the dead? Not only for his own demonstration to prove that he was the son of God, which that is what it did, according to Romans 1, 1 to 4, that he is declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He is the son of God, but why do we need to know that he is the son of God? Because he is the judge of the whole earth. He's the judge of the whole earth, and if we want to have his kind of immortal resurrection, his kind of body that is no longer susceptible to decay and death, if we want to have that kind of body forever, we must be joined to him in true faith. But if we're not joined to him, be certain that that day of judgment will be an ominous, terrifying, fearful day for all unbelievers. And their resurrection will be a resurrection of judgment. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. He said, A day is coming when all who are in the tomb shall hear the voice of the Son of Man, and all who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and all who did the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. It will be a resurrection. They will live in those bodies forever, even the wicked will live in their bodies forever, but their bodies will be susceptible to pain and torment, just like the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he pled with Abraham to give him some relief from that torment. There is this certain day. It's a fixed day. It's an appointed day. Make no doubt about it. Let no one confuse you. Let no one make you think that that day of judgment is not true. Yes, in liberal theology and in many religions of the world, they laugh and mock and scorn the thought that there is a day of judgment. But no, liberal theology is false. The religions of the world are false. Only the Bible is true. And what it says, it says from beginning to end, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, that there is a certain day of judgment. Furthermore, he calls it a terrifying expectation of judgment. A terrifying expectation of judgment. You know, many people think, and especially some people of prominence, they think that of wealth and prominence. I'm thinking of the, the mayor of, of, uh, of New York, he said this a few years ago, Mayor Bloomberg, he said that he, when he gets to heaven, it's going to be a very easy thing when he gets there and meets God. He's, God is going to open up the doors wide for him into heaven. Now, he is a secular Jew who doesn't believe the Bible. He doesn't believe in the gospel of Christ. And he's thinking it's going to be a piece of cake when he meets God when he dies. That's what he thinks. He's not thinking of the time he meets God as being a terrifying time to meet God. He's not looking at it that way. But in the Bible, everyone who encounters God, he's afraid he's going to die. He's afraid he's not going to live. This is what happens. This is what happened to um, Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 when she met the messenger of the Lord and she said, have I lived after I've seen him? I have seen him uh, with my own eyes and she's, a, she's amazed that she's going to live, that she's still alive. Jacob in Genesis 32, 
he says that, am I alive? Even though I have seen God face to face, I am still alive. He's amazed that he is still alive. Isaiah the prophet, we know the famous passage in Isaiah 6. He sees the Lord and the angels all around him, the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then he says, woe is me for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the, the king, the Lord of hosts. He says this. He thinks he's ruined. He's about to die because he has just seen God face to face. This is even throughout the New Testament. Remember what happened to Simon Peter. When, God, uh, when Christ showed his glory by telling Simon to throw his net over uh, the, the boat, and even though they had been fishing all night in Luke chapter 5, when they had fished all night and caught nothing, Jesus said, throw your net over. So he does it. And then they pulled out from the, the water a, a large amount of fish that even the nets were breaking because of that. And then what does Simon Peter do? He falls down and he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. I've seen your glory and I, I'm afraid. You need to go away from me, otherwise I'm going to die instantly. That's the kind of terrifying thought that came into Simon Peter's mind, in Isaiah's mind, in Jacob's mind. This is the way it is. This is the way it is when we think of meeting God face to face. We have to be ready because if we're not found in Christ, there's no peace. There's only terror. There's only fright. There's only trembling and shaking in the sight of God. Look, for example, in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. When Jesus returns, how will it be? How will it be specifically toward his enemies? When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, verse 11, he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled 
with their flesh. When Christ returns, this is describing the return of Christ, he will have his armies, his angelic armies, he will have a sharp sword, the sword of his word. All he has to do is say the word and judgment takes place. And he's carrying out the judgment of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. He is the supreme king. He is the supreme Lord. And he will defeat all of his enemies. Even the great commanders, the great men, the strong men of all the earth. He will defeat them. He'll destroy them. And it will be such a disaster for them. It is like the assembling of birds of prey over the carcasses of people on the open field. They're going to devour them because they're going to be instantly destroyed. That's the kind of terrifying judgment that awaits. It's not a judgment that we want to face. We want to be found in Christ. We want to be found in peace, in our security, not found on the wrong side of that day. Furthermore, he says in verse 27, in Hebrews 10, 27, he calls it the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. You recall it said in Revelation 19, 19, 15, that it is the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. The fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. When Jesus judges on that day of judgment, he's going to be executing the fierce wrath of God Almighty, the fierce wrath of God the Father. That is the anger or the fury of God the Father, which is described like a fire, like a fire that's ablaze, that's uncontrollable, that will consume everything it faces. But it's not just God the Father's wrath that he will execute. Notice in Revelation 6, 16. Revelation 6, 16. It says, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They say, they want the rocks to come on them instead of facing God and the, God the Father and God the Son. And here in 16 it says, the wrath of the Lamb, the great day of their wrath, of God the Father and God the Son, it has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to shake his fist up at God and say, this is wrong, this is unfair, I'm not going to do what you want me to do for all eternity? No, it's too late. It's too late because the wrath of the Father and of the wrath of the Lamb. It is a furious fire. Another place to see this fire is in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. You see, when I just cited Revelation, someone may say, well, those are figurative passages. Those are just hyperbolic expressions in the book of Revelation. God's not really going to prepare the world for a day of judgment. God doesn't really get angry. He, he doesn't have furious wrath. No, no, no. That's just an exaggeration. It's just hyperbole. But this passage in 2 Thessalonians is not apocalyptic. It's not eschatological and apocalyptic in the sense that there's a lot of figurative language used. That's not the way 2 Thessalonians is. It's straightforward. It's a letter. It's an epistle. It's straightforward describing that when Jesus comes, he'll come with mighty angels in flaming fire, and he'll deal out retribution, and there will be eternal destruction for those who don't know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, straightforward. The saints will be saved, but... The wicked will be destroyed forever in flaming fire. That's the kind of furious wrath God has. I'd like us to see an example of this in history. An example of this in history is in the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. If we turn there we will see how explicitly how explicitly it is mentioned. We'll read Lamentations chapter 2. Notice the language of this chapter. Notice very carefully the language of this chapter. Lamentations chapter 2. Remember, this is a lament, or this is a sad song that's reflecting on the destruction of the people of Judah. Their country was destroyed, their temple was destroyed, and the people were exiled, sent out of their land. There were foreigners coming to live in their land, and they brought idolatry and everything else. So it was a, a very miserable time in the life of the people. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did in 586 B.C. So after all of that destruction from foreign enemies came, they say this uh, prayer, or this is a part of the lamentation or song that they sang. Lamentations 2. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasing to the eye in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his wrath like fire, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. 
He has destroyed his strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and moaning. And he has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. And he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. You get the point? How he's saying again and again, God had fierce anger, wrath against his people. It was a fiery wrath because they deserved to be punished. This is the kind of the fury of a fire, as Hebrews says it, quoting Isaiah 26, of the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And then we see in verse 27, it's a fire which will consume. A fire which will consume. When it says consume, some interpreters have misinterpreted this consumption or this destruction as meaning that once people are punished temporarily on the day of judgment, then they don't live anymore. They cease to exist. They call this annihilationism. They call it annihilationism where we live now, but once we die, we don't live anymore. God will cause us not to exist anymore. We will be extinguished. We will not exist. We will be annihilated. This is how some people take this word in the Bible, consumption, or to consume, or to destroy, or to be eternally punished. The problem is, the Bible doesn't define it that way. The Bible does not define to be consumed to mean to stop existing. It doesn't mean it that way. And how can we know the Bible doesn't mean to be consumed means never to exist again after we die? First example of this is in Daniel chapter 12. In the book of Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 12, verse, verses 2 and 3. Daniel 12, 2 to 3. Daniel is describing the time of resurrection, the day of resurrection. In Daniel 12, verse 2, he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's two resurrections he describes here. The one resurrection, these people are raised to eternal life. And in verse 3, they are described as being bright and in, in radiance like the stars. And they will exist like this in radiance and righteousness forever and ever. And they are characterized by leading other people to righteousness, that is to the gospel. But notice in verse 2. Everlasting life describes the one, but notice the other. But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. 
That means that their bodies also will rise from the dead. And when their bodies rise from the dead, they will have everlasting disgrace and contempt. Well, if they don't exist, how can there be everlasting disgrace and contempt? We know that the righteous live forever with everlasting life. And he uses the same word, the same word in the original language to describe everlasting disgrace and contempt. So the one has life and prosperity and peace forever and ever, and the other has disgrace and contempt forever and ever. Two groups, two destinies. Plain from that passage. Here's another place in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has explained the sheep and the goats. He's explaining it in this passage, Matthew 25. And to the one group, he will tell them, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The people on his left will go where the devil and his angels will go, that is, to the eternal fire. He calls it eternal fire. So there's going to be this forever and ever. And then look at verse 46, the two groups. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Two outcomes, two destinies, two eternal destinies. Eternal punishment for the one, which is the same as the eternal fire in verse 41. If the punishment is eternal in the fire, which is eternal, then the life is eternal. If the life is eternal, then the punishment must be eternal, according to verse 46. The same word in the original language, eternal punishment and eternal life. So if our life is eternal, then their punishment is also eternal. It's, it's straightforward and matter of fact. The Bible is very clear about this teaching. That's why when it says consume, it doesn't mean to cease existing, to be annihilated. It does not mean that. It means that this will be a constant and eternal torment and destruction that awaits people who oppose God. Which leads us to the final word in our verse, verse 27. Of, of the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. An adversary. Who is an adversary? An adversary is a foe. He's an opponent. He's your enemy. An adversary is your enemy. And notice here, these are adversaries of God. These are enemies of God. Everyone who comes into the world comes into the world as an enemy of God. He doesn't come into the world as someone who is at peace with God, someone who is at harmony with God, he comes into the world as one who is an enemy of God. And either we are released from that status of being an enemy to being his friend, to being a peacemaker, to being a son of peace, uh, or a man of peace. We're either in that category after our conversion, or we remain in the category of being his adversary, his enemy. How do we know this? Notice, for example, in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. We'll read verses 9 and 10. Romans 5, 
Verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, Everyone who's born into the world is born an enemy, an adversary, a foe of God. He is alienated from God. But here he says that while we were in that category, when we were in that state, we were enemies of God, yet God sent his son to die for our sins. Therefore, if we're now in Christ, we are now reconciled. We're no longer enemies. We have peace. He says in verse 1, Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have peace. And Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then, we're either his adversary or we are his friend. We are either his adversary or we are his ally. We're either on his side or we're not on his side. And those who remain on the opposite side, the side of his foes, the side of his adversaries, this is the judgment that awaits. We better not be in that category. We better not be in that position when the day of judgment comes. Instead, we should be in Christ, where there is peace, where there is reconciliation, where there is forgiveness of sins. There is no condemnation. We ought to be like that and not an adversary. We do not come into the world as peaceful people in the sight of God. That's something we have to recognize. We have to recognize that and teach that to people. We don't come in harmony with God. We come into the world as his enemy. And we have to rectify that. We have to resolve that. There must be reconciliation. And if there is no reconciliation, that day of judgment will consume the adversaries. When we hear this doctrine, we ought to rejoice that we have Christ because God has not left us hopeless. He has not left us helpless, powerless. He has not left us that way. We have Christ. So let's rejoice that we have Christ. And if we do not have Christ, we must look introspectively. We must look to ourselves and also look to our loved ones and ask them, Do you know Christ? Are you in Christ? Do you believe in Christ? He is the only way. The only way, the truth, and the life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, our prayer is that we will, when we think about this day of judgment, we will not be those that are terrified, uncertain, who have no hope and who have no comfort in preparation for that day. Grant us a heart to know you, a heart that is reconciled. May we, through you alone, confess your name. We believe in you, Lord. We we pray that each of us will believe in you in truth, fully until the very end. May we not, not go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. May we be reconciled. May we be your friends and no longer your foes. 
in Christ. Amen.